Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're with us today. And we have been walking through a series of messages here at Peachtree called A Soft Heart for a Hard World. The Bible describes someone with a soft heart as someone who is wise and kind and generous, and yet we live in an insane and cruel and stingy world at times. And so we're discovering how God refines that character in his people and how God reflects that character through his story. And the place where we've seen this uh, kind of the most directly that we've been walking through in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. That's when we hear about, you know, kind of Pharaoh's hard heart. That's the most common reference to a hard heart. And we've been following the journey of God's people through that Exodus journey. We've seen them in slavery and how God hears their cries and the burning bush and the moment of the 10 plagues and the way that there's that contest plays out, the Passover meal. And then now we find ourselves to the most defining moment of the Old Testament. This is the Red Sea deliverance, the Red Sea miracle. And I want to begin today in kind of an unusual place. I want to take you deep, dark into a cave into a mine, in fact. This is the Kew Creek Mine that's located out of a small town in Pennsylvania, 240 feet deep. There were nine miners who were doing some work down here when all of a sudden, because of some faulty maps, people accidentally dug in an area they thought was an empty shaft, but it was a flooded shaft, and 50 to 60 million gallons of water flooded into the Kew Creek Mine. Water that was 55 degrees, nine miners trapped in a little area that's no more than like four feet wide. And they were having to huddle together, taking turns in order to try to stay warm. In no effort, they had to get an air shaft all the way down to them. And then they began the great rescue operation of trying to get those nine miners to the surface. Who can forget these images from 2002, July 24th, it began not just one day, but two days and three days down in the darkness before all nine of those miners were rescued and they were saved. Stories like these captivate us. They enchant us as a people. We love a rescue story, partly because we all know what it feels like to be trapped. We know what it feels like to run up against all of your limitations, to be stuck. You might be trapped by your own body or by a disease. You might be trapped by your own thoughts and your inability to stop doing something, maybe like an addiction. You might be trapped by your circumstances. Maybe it's a job loss or whatever you're facing in kind of a financial uncertainty. You might be trapped by um, you might be trapped by a relationship that has really turned destructive. All of us know, in one form or another, what it feels like to be trapped. And it's in those moments where God has stripped away all of our pretense and all of our illusions of being in control, and it's in those moments that we know that we need a rescuer. We need a savior. That we cannot manage our way out of our own life circumstances that there's no way to engineer a process by which we can save ourselves, that we need someone from the outside to come down into the darkness and the depths of our lives in order to save us. 
And that's exactly what is happening for God's people in Israel as they find themselves trapped. They are pinned with their backs against the raging waters of the Red Sea and with Pharaoh's army barreling down upon them. And God is about to find a way for them where there seems to be no way. You might ask yourself, how did we get to this part of the story? And what we've noticed as we've gone through the book of Exodus is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. One of the things that we learn by looking at kind of all of these chapters up to this point is that one of the clearest indications of a hardened heart is the inability to stay focused. Someone who has a hardened heart is constantly changing their mind that they don't really have a true north, that they don't really have a compass that tells them what right and wrong really is. And so what we see from the person of Pharaoh is we see a figure who is constantly flip-flopping from one opinion to the next. It looks kind of strange as you read the story. You'll see Pharaoh acquiescing, you know, during one of the plagues and one of the demonstrations of God's power. And he'll be like, oh, okay, 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 I give. And then all of a sudden he goes back to the position that he had before. John Wartburg says that what Pharaoh is doing is not true repentance. It's a form of pain management with God. That in other words, when the pain gets turned up enough, Pharaoh will do anything and say anything. But when the pain finally goes back down, Pharaoh's true heart is exposed and it's hardened once again. And so in today's story, what we find, you would think that after all the 10 plagues and the loss of the firstborn child, that that really now at this point, Pharaoh has been willing to surrender. But it says in the text that Pharaoh changed his mind once again, and he asks himself, what have we done? Comes to the conclusion that he would rather annihilate God's people than actually live with the reality that he had let them go. And so he begins to assemble his army, and he begins to go after them. One of the things that I feel like I must address that you start to get to see at this point in the story is that at several points in the story, it talks about how uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then there are other parts of the story where it says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I find that there's a great deal of confusion around this. I want you to know that I don't think there's any answers to this, that it's something that's attention, that two things can be true at the same time. And that at times it seems that yes, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and there are other times where it seems that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I think anybody who's willing to try to give you a pat answer to reconcile these two things is actually doing a disservice to Holy Scripture. That these things are both realities, that both the freedom of humanity and the sovereignty of God must be upheld and that these two things cannot be explained away. In other words, you can make one of two mistakes. You can kind of fall off the train tracks on one side by saying, you know what, Um, you know, everything is left up to chance. It's all up to us. Or on the other extreme, you might think that, that we're all just robots and that everything is predetermined. Neither one of those realities is faithful to Scripture, and that we have to hold both of these things together, both freedom and sovereignty, and anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. There's no way to reconcile it any different. We just have to hold it in tension. 
And so somehow freedom and sovereignty are playing together in this story, that that is what the closest thing to reality that we can understand is. But what we do know is that Pharaoh's heart hardens again. And in amassing his army, we find out that he has assembled his 600 chariots. These are like the special ops forces of his day. This was the most remarkable technology and warfare at this point in time. In other words, as he assembles his chariots plus all of the other chariots of Israel to barrel down upon God's people fleeing in the wilderness, this is not going to be a battle. This is going to be a slaughter field. And here is what happens. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Pause for a moment right there. Is that what they said to Moses when they were in slavery in Egypt? That we like it here? That this is the best place for it? No, this is not what they said at all in Egypt. One of the things that happens when you get really afraid is you start to rewrite history. And they're reorienting what the past really was. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert, they say. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the incorporating and the putting into practice of his holy word. This is not what we expect to happen. You expect with their backs pinned against the wall of the sea, with the Egyptians coming after them, what you expect is that for Moses to rise to the occasion, to stand before his people, to marshal the troops, to say, we can do this, let's attack. You might expect it to be kind of like this, Braveheart style, that they're going to yell freedom and they're going to go after the Egyptians, but that's not what happens. In fact, it's the opposite. This is not their battle. It's not their fight. And the core of this passage is a central theological reality that I hope that you will always carry with you, that the Lord will fight for you, that the Lord will fight for you. I want to introduce you to Nadine Khoury, 13 years old in this picture, moved to the United States, immigrated with his family in the year 2000 from the country of Liberia. Nadine is not a large kid for 13 years old. He's five foot two, maybe if he's soaking wet, he might weigh 100 pounds. Small kid that originally landed in Minneapolis, they couldn't keep the family job there, and so they had to move to Philadelphia. And when they moved to Philadelphia, moved into a new school, he looked different, acted differently, different accent. And because of that, people began to pick on him. And the picking turned into bullying. There were particularly these seven guys that 
took it upon themselves to pick on the dean. It was seven against one. And the escalation of the bullying got worse and worse over time. They dragged him through the snow. They would put him up in a tree so much high that he would be afraid to come down. They hung him to a fence. They beat him. On one particular occasion, knowing that it was coming, Nadine videotaped the assault, captured it on video, posted it to the internet, sent it to the authorities. It went viral. The people who committed the crime were caught. Nadine, not wanting this to happen to other kids, he said, who might even be smaller and more vulnerable than he was, decided to go on a talk show to tell his story, to be vulnerable, to share. Unbeknownst to Nadine, the producers of the TV show had another trick up their sleeve, that while Nadine was telling his story, a couple of people from the Philadelphia Eagles stood behind him, two linemen and an all-pro wide receiver by the name of Deshaun Jackson. They put a jersey on him. Deshaun Jackson put his arm around him, and each of them gave the kid their cell phone numbers and said, if anybody ever messes with you, you call us. Do you think anybody ever bullied Nadine at school <laughs> after they knew that he had linemen from the Philadelphia Eagles on speed dial? Nope, because they would fight for him. And when you know that somebody will fight for you, that changes everything. It is the Lord who fights for Israel. When you read the rest of the story, you can see this. It's really clear that the Lord drove the sea back, that the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, that the Lord jammed the wheels of the chariots, that the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, that the Lord saved Israel that day. This is not about the heroics of Moses. It is not about the bravery of the people. It is not about their strength. It is not about their military might. In fact, all of this story is about the inadequacy of all of those things. And even in that moment where they are trapped and all hope seems lost, the Lord will fight for them. And because the Lord fights for them, their future is secure. So how do things change for you when you believe that the Lord fights for you? The first change is that fear becomes trust. We saw earlier in the text that that in verse 13, that once Pharaoh comes, that, man, the people were terrified. And yet by the time you get to verse 31, at the end of this portion of the story, it says that the Israelites put their hope in the Lord. Their fear melts away and becomes faith. C.S. Lewis has a series of children's stories. Most people know them in the Chronicles of Narnia as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but the other books are just as good. One of my favorite books is The Silver Chair, and there's a scene in the book The Silver Chair where Jill is going through a wilderness and difficult period, and she is incredibly thirsty, and she is looking for a source of water in order to drink. She knows of the great lion Aslan who represents Jesus Christ or God in the story and she makes her way forward towards the stream and she cannot wait to drink and then she discovers that the lion is there. 
and she becomes afraid. And this is what Lewis writes. The lion tells her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill hesitates. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this if it were boasting or as it were sorry or if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. And so Jill takes another step closer. And she reaches down. And in a moment she realizes she has to either choose to drink And in order to do so, she has to take her gaze off of the lion. She has to trust him. And she reaches down and she tastes the sweetest water she has ever had that forever quenches her thirst. We live in a frightening world. But when you know that the Lord will fight for you, that he's not against you but for you, your fear can turn into trust. But also when you know that the Lord will fight for you, you know that your crying out becomes moving on. I want to begin by asking you to answer this question, a little congregational participation portion of the message. Turn with somebody next to you and, and answer this question. What is your favorite thing to complain about? Turn to somebody next to you. What's your favorite thing to complain about? I didn't say for you to actually complain about it. I said to describe what you like to complain about. I mean, how many for you, you like to complain about traffic? Anybody like to complain? How many of you like to complain about like school or work? Anybody like to complain about that? Um, How many of you like to complain about heat and humidity as we get to that that time of year? Like, how many of you like to complain about politics? Hmm? Anybody like to complain? How many of you like to complain about your preacher? Anybody? Okay, I see a couple of places where we're gonna perform an excommunication a little later. And uh, no, we all, I mean, we all have something, right? We all have something that we love to complain about. And that's okay. It's okay for there to be moments when we cry out. There's okay for moments for us to be able to just kind of let it out, to let out a little steam. Here's the problem though. Many of us want to just stay there. Many of us prefer the comfort of the complaints that we know to the discomfort of the freedom that God wants to give to you. 
You know, you, you can almost picture it in this story because you can see um, there's, you know, in the first opening chapters, they cry out, they cry out. God hears their cries. God hears their cries. The shifting point happens in this point of the story where, where they're crying out to God and God says to Moses, stop crying out to me and move on. It's almost you can picture it in the sense of like God's divided the Red Sea and they're still standing on the shores complaining. And God's like, move it, like go, go. I have carved out a way for you and you've got to go. But again, some of us would prefer the complaints that we're so acquainted with to the uncertainty of the freedom that's before us. I have a friend who's been divorced for about five years now. And it was a horrible thing to go through. He still feels the impact of that in his life. The challenge for him, and he would be the first to admit this, would be he's just having trouble moving on. He's having trouble moving forward, even though it's been a while. I would argue when you know that the Lord fights for you, that the Lord advocates for you, that the Lord is for you and not against you, that is what you need to give you the courage to take that first step. That he doesn't want you to stay in the vortex or the whirlpool of your own complaints. In fact, when it comes to things like politics, wouldn't it be great to be a community where we actually did more good than we did complain about the bad? where we became the kind of people who were known, not just for kvetching about what we don't like, but we're actually engaged in making our communities a better place. Doesn't want you to stay there. He wants to rescue you. He wants to free you. And you won't do that, I don't think, until you know that the Lord fights for you. That the battle can be won. It can't be won by you. But the battle can be won. That is even true for politics in America right now. God is still in control. When the Lord fights for you, fear becomes trust. Crying out becomes moving on. And finally, what is here today becomes never again. What is meant by this is that the Lord tells Moses in this passage that the Egyptians that you see before you today, you will never see again. These very Egyptians who have ruined their lives and the lives of their ancestors, who were barreling down upon them in this very moment with threatening fire, you're never going to see them again. What is here now is going to be gone then. Our family used to live in a little town that was suburban New York. It's called Summit, New Jersey. Quaint, beautiful little town. It was a gorgeous spring day. All of the windows in my office were open. You could hear the birds chirping in the trees that had finally just gotten their leaves back. You could hear kind of the, the noises of small town America. You could hear a couple of cars going by, pedestrians, people laughing, talking, enjoying being outside. I'm in the middle of a meeting when all of a sudden I hear the screeching of tires and the crunch of metal. Not something you hear in a small town too often. I race to the window and I look outside and it's not two cars that have been caught in an accident. It's worse than that. It's a car 
and one of those jogger strollers underneath the car all crumpled into a heap. There's a woman standing beside the stroller who's absolutely frantic. I run downstairs and fortunately the little girl was tossed from the stroller before it was mangled by the car. The woman who was with her was a nanny and even though there was blood and a lot of confusion, I could tell that this little girl was a part of our church. Her name was Cameron. Her mom and her dad both worked in New York City and that's why she was with a nanny. Because the nanny was so frantic, I offered to ride in the ambulance with Cameron just so that there would be a familiar and comforting face. And so we went only a few blocks away to the hospital. While we were there, we discovered that fortunately, Cameron had sustained some knocks and some bruises and maybe a couple of broken bones, but nothing that was going to be forever kind of trauma other than the emotion of having gone through that. The parents were immediately called. It took a while for them to get there to deal with all the hassle of public transportation in New York to finally get there. The mom got there first. She came running into the hospital. She wrapped her arms around her daughter. She turned to me through tears and she said, I have prayed for the first moment of my life, Pastor. I've been going to church my whole life. I've always just kind of gone through the motions. I didn't know what prayer was until I got there today. She had gotten to her limitation. She had had her Red Sea moment of being trapped. Here was a high-powered executive woman who was used to managing her way, controlling her way, buying her way into whatever the situation was that she felt comfortable with. There's no way you can do that for yourself, much less for a child. And she knew it. She knew it in that moment that she was totally out of control and that her life and the life of her child was in someone else's hands and not her own. You can imagine what this was like about a month later when I baptized that whole family. And I said the words of Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. For I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. She learned in that moment she needed a rescuer. She couldn't do it on her own. And the most horrific moment for a mother possible imagined was here today, but would also become never again. I know that probably for many of you in this room, you feel like you've prayed that hard and it didn't turn out in the same way for you. We live in the midst of an in-between time where not all things get reconciled on our timetable and in the way that we expect. But hear me in this. We believe in a God who is restoring and reconciling and redeeming and saving all things and that there is nothing in this world that will not be restored by his goodness and his power and his love. 
In fact, if you fast forward to the end of the story of the Bible, if you connect Exodus and you connect it all the way to Revelation, that there is a time, there is a time in history, my friends, there is a time where the new day will come, where it talks about there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more night because the Lord God's light will shine at all times, that there will be no more closed gates because we will all be together in community that the leaves of the tree and the city of life will be for the healing of all nations, that everything gets made right. And it is in that moment, I love how Randy Alcorn expands on those images by saying this, no death, no suffering, no funeral homes or abortion clinics or psychiatric wards, no rape, no missing children or drug rehabilitation centers, no bigotry, no muggings, no killings, no worry or depression or economic downturns, no wars, no unemployment, no anguish over failure and miscommunication, no con men, no locks, no death, no mourning, no pain, no boredom. No arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer, no taxes, whoop, whoop, no bills, no computer crashes, no weeds, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams. Can I have an amen? amen. No accidents, no septic tank backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails, close friendship but no clicks, laughter but no put-downs, intimacy but not even the temptation to immorality, no hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals, no fear, no insensitivity, no anger, no gossip, no jealousy, no hurt feelings, no one will go hungry and all will be satisfied, no one will weep and everyone will laugh. That day is coming, my friends. And we live in the midst of that, that yes, there are things that are here today, but there is going to come a day when the Egyptians that you see now, you will never see again. They will be no more. There's a little memorial in Kew Creek, Pennsylvania, with a statue of a miner holding a book doesn't say what the book is on the piece of art. The artist didn't want to preach, but expressed his intent that the book is the Bible. Notice that the miner isn't running around frantic and that the miner is not cowering in fear but that the miner is experiencing the peace of God from the truth of God. We believe that the Exodus story is our story and that one of the core realities of that story is that there is a God and he will fight for you. Let's pray. I pray, God, for the person who feels trapped right now, stuck in their circumstances with no other options. Lord, at the end of their limitations, will they turn to you? fight for them. Turn their fear into trust. 
turn their cries into a path ahead. And Father, for the Egyptians in our lives who would threaten to kill us, may never again become our new reality. And what is here today will be known.